Welcome to Crop Watch Podcast, a production of Nebraska Extension. Well, hello and welcome to another edition of Fridays with the Scientists. Today, we are fortunate to have the new director of the School of Natural Resources, Dr. Larkin Powell. Larkin, how are you today? I'm great. and Thanks for the invitation to chat with you. Yeah, excellent. So your study was on painted turtles. And I have to confess, ignorance. I believe I had heard of a painted turtle, but I wasn't entirely sure what it was. I didn't realize it was a relatively uh, common turtle across North America. Right. No, it's a pond turtle. And um, they have these little yellow stripes on their face that, uh, and then their their belly, the, the uh, plastron, uh, we call it, the, the shell that's on their uh underside is kind of a bright orange and has a pattern on it so that's where they get the name painted um, is from that orange color and they range pretty much uh, in northern U.S. they go all the way coast to coast in the southern part um, if you kind of just take a big chunk out of southwestern United States about a southwest fourth of the country um, they're not there but so we're getting close to the western edge of their range. Okay. So what would you consider an ideal habitat for the painted turtle? They, they Well, they, they call them pond turtles. They can live in rivers, but they tend to like slower water. So they, they're not a real fast water, fast river turtle. Um, so you can find them along the edges of rivers basking. Um, but they also live in a lot of uh, lakes and ponds. And so you can often see them in the more shallow areas of, of those uh, water bodies. And they, because they like to get up out of the water to, to uh, thermoregulate during the day, to, to warm up uh, in the sun's rays. Makes sense. Yeah, so I, I, I must also confess, I didn't realize you had done any work with painted turtles until I read that one article. Uh, what, what got you interested in the painted turtle? Yeah, so normally I am a, I normally study birds. Um, I was going to say normally I'm a bird guy, uh, but the uh, I taught a class out at Cedar Point Biological Station in western Nebraska, and we were needing to calculate population size of something based on marks and recaptures. And so um, in this class situation, just catching like songbirds in a mist net, um, we weren't getting enough it was fun to do, but we didn't get enough marks and recaptures each day to estimate a good population size. So I had started playing around with some undergraduate students on painted turtle research, and I knew you could catch a lot of them. And so there was a pond near the station that we started to use, and it was it was in that pond that we could get 25 to 45 turtles every day. Um, in our traps. And so over a period of three or four days, you'd have a lot of data to actually estimate the population size. That's that's impressive. Yeah. So it's not like a creative solution to a problem. Um, do you mind just describing the study site out there a little bit more around Cedar Point? I, a lot of people probably have never been there, may not be really familiar with the landscape out there? Sure. Yeah. Cedar Point Biological Station is a university research teaching station, and it's on the banks of Lake Ogallala, which of course is the pit that they dug for the Kingsley Dam on Lake McConaughey. So, so it's in the North Platte River Valley and it overlooks that river valley. Um, my study pond is then up to the north 
um, just out of eyesight of the biological station. And it's in the beginning, right as the sand hills are, are taking off from that North Platte River Valley. Um, and so it's up in on a ranch, a private ranch in the sand hills. We get permission from the landowner. They've uh, amusingly let us come back for uh, ever since 2005. They just think it's kind of interesting that we're interested in their turtles. So, um, so that this pond is um, created by the road going through the sand hills, and the the road made a dam. And there's about a um, one or two acre pond that's behind that road. Interesting. Yeah, I've seen pictures of Cedar Point. It looks beautiful out there. I've never been personally. Uh, so it's definitely getting into more pasture and range country, maybe a little yes. bit of irrigated crops in the area. but Definitely uh, drier. And if there's any crops, they're uh, sometimes uh, even allowed to go fallow in between years or mm -hmm. they're uh, irrigated down in that Platte River Valley. Yep. Yeah. So I like to study drought. I don't necessarily like drought, but I love studying it. Done a lot of research on the last 10 years. And it sounds like drought was um, a big problem for these turtles. Yeah. So as we we just kept going back out, uh, it was a fun training exercise. And I had a feeling that this data was going to be valuable in some way over the long term. And one of the research questions that eventually a couple of undergraduate students um, put together to to, as they were putting all this data since 2005 together was um, how different factors might influence the growth of turtles and their survival. And so, um, and drought or just temperature and precipitation um, were suggested as things that they might look at. And so it turned out that drought, the kind of the combination, the drought index, um, the combination of the temperature and precipitation was the thing that really did actually explain um, some of the population dynamics that we were seeing in those turtles. Interesting. So what would you say was the biggest drought impact of the turtles? Yeah, well, the so the first student to look at it a uh, student named Ellen Dolph, she um, looked at the growth. So every year we go out, we catch these turtles in a floating trap. Um, they get up on the trap to uh, bask in the sun and then they jump, jump into the middle rather than jumping off to the edge. Um, and now they're in a floating basket. We can pull that up out of the water. And so we measure them the length of the shell on the top and the bottom, the width, we weigh them, uh, take a, you know, we try not to bother them for too long and get them back in the pond. Uh, but we also mark each turtle. Um, it's kind of like if you think about the white of your fingernail, the edge of their shell, we call them the margin, the margins of the shell. We drill little holes in there. And it's just like if, um, like I grew up on a pig farm and we would notch pig ears so we could know individual mm -hmm. pigs. And so each turtle has an individual left right code of which skewt uh, along the side has the drill in it so they all have an individual id and so over time we can look at actually the growth pattern of individual turtles and so she was able to see that during drought years whether it was classified just as drought or non-drought or whether we looked at it more continuous as to like what the drought index over the last previous 12 months was like how droughty and how not droughty, um, both of those ways of looking at it, analyzing the data showed that they grew less during um, drought periods. And so that was a pretty interesting thing, especially in this pond 
that doesn't dry up. So a lot of previous drought studies with turtles have been looking at ponds that completely dry up and mm -hmm. the turtles go somewhere else or they die. Um, this study was of a pond that always had a pretty substantial amount of water in it. I'm guessing it's probably spring fed. Um, but even in those drought years, the guess is that there's some aquatic insects that are less abundant. And so they're probably food um, limited during those drought years. So they just don't have as much energy to put into growth in their, in their body. Um, and the second, the second student later uh, looked at survival and, and they survive at about 10% lower chance of living through the year um, dur during drought years too, which is actually a pretty, you know, if, if that's, I, not, that's not insignificant. If somebody told me I had 10% chance <laughs> next year, that would, yeah, that'd be a pretty big thing to me. So uh, these are pretty long-lived turtles in the first place. So, so a drought can have impact on them. Um, and then the third thing that we looked at was they are, turtles have a temperature dependent uh, sex determination. So an egg is laid and depending on the temperature of that egg during development, that can either turn into a male or female turtle. And so the drought years tend to be warmer. And um, even within the nest of turtles, interestingly, like the ones that are closer to the top are probably warmer. The ones closer to the bottom of the clutch down in the soil are cooler. And so it can even vary within the nest. But generally speaking, when we look back uh, before we caught the smallest turtles that were in the first age class that our traps could catch, if we looked back um, four to six years, the drought conditions during that time um, affected that sex ratio. Um, so, so we had um, uh, really interesting dynamics happening with growth, with reproduction and the, the sex ratio and then survival. So it was like affecting almost their entire life history. Wow, that's uh, that's really fascinating. I mean, the, the growth aspect, that doesn't surprise you too much. So I would not have guessed about the, the sex aspect though. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, part of the states had some pretty severe droughts in the last two decades. I'm thinking maybe 2006, 2012. I mean, did you find that those were some of the worst years? Yeah, in our drought index, um, the kind of that follow up, we were not there. Um, it was it was two, 2005, six, seven um, had had um, uh, higher drought indices, more droughty drought indices. Mm -hmm. And then the um, the period and we're we're measuring. So when I say 2013, it would actually be from June 2013 back to June 2012. That we're taking the average drought conditions. So the 2013 and 14, we had um, below average, or, or I guess, <laughs> depending on how you say it, uh, the the drought index was uh, was was droughtier than um, than other years in those two years too. So we kind of had that early in our study, 2006 yeah. and seven, and then 2013 and 14 were yeah. the most droughty. Yeah. So you'd had some years of recovery in there, but so did you? Did you find that the growth rates stabilized pretty quickly once you went back to more went back to wetter conditions, or did that take a couple of years? Right, because the way we were looking at it, um, essentially, and the the data analysis showed that if the next year was good, then the growth the growth would pop back up. So um, so it's just kind of dependent on 
those conditions that year, um, if there was more water in, uh, in the landscape, uh, apparently there was more insects. And I think that food is what's driving this whole thing is the, the larval insects that are in the water um, driving, driving this. Did, did it make, and again, maybe if you didn't study this as closely, forgive me for asking this question, did it make as much of a difference if the drought was as bad in the spring versus say like maybe later in the growing season for the for growth rates in terms of like the, maybe they're the insects? That would be really interesting to look at because the the metric that we used was the average drought conditions over the previous 12 months. So we didn't get that fine scale on it. Um, but that's something we could have another undergraduate student take the data and, and look at more fine scale. Um, because what you said is probably uh, going to be the case um, that there's the, there's a certain time that's really going to impact those insect populations. Sure. I mean, for agriculture, timing of the onset of drought is very important. In agriculture, you tend to be sometimes more concerned with short-term drought, uh, hydrologic. So, I mean, you, the turtles tend to be very much on the hydrologic spectrum of drought, which is, you know, the one-year index is very appropriate for that. Um, okay, that sounds like a great study. So, where could we find a bit more information on this study? Sure. So, I've got a, I've got a website. Um, uh, if you Google Larkin Powell, you'll probably find my website. But there's um, there's a there the papers were published. Um, one of them is in the journal uh, called Diversity, and um, and one of them is in Climate Change Ecology. Um, and so they're out there. But the easiest place to 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 find those is probably on my website. Um, and and I'm happy to to respond to emails and uh, if people are interested, I can get the paper straight to them as well. Cool. Excellent. Well, I just got one more question for you today. And it's uh, perhaps a little bit of a loaded question. Uh, so you're in your first week as director of the School of Natural Resources, a tall task. Uh, I would say you have some big shoes to fill after 10 years of Dr. John Carroll. That's right. Um, but you've also been here for, I believe, over a little over 20 years. Uh, yep, so I think you have a, yeah. a fairly uh, good understanding of the lay of the land here and maybe have a bit of a unique perspective, uh, but just kind of stepping into this job, what what do you think is the greatest strength of the School of Natural Resources? Yeah, I, it's a great question. I think one of the things that defines us is the breadth of what we do. So we've, you know, if you kind of just uh, take the take the school, the different uh, floors here in a nine-story Hardin Hall, we've got people that that work in hydrology and groundwater and uh, geology and soils. Um, and then we've got people that are doing remote sensing of the plants uh, that grow in those soils. We've got people that are studying fish and wildlife in those soils. We've got people studying the prairies and the forests. Um, and then we have uh, climate folks, um, people out in the lakes and rivers. So, so we've got two floors of different types of climate people. Um, and, and it's just, you know, the, the, the little motto is from earth to sky and everything in between. And I think not only is it the, our breadth, but we actually have incredible um, 
national and international reputations in each one of those areas. And so that's what's exciting to me is that it's not just like we're we're not just like the Platte River because we're broad and shallow. We're broad and we're actually really deep, too. So um, it's a you know, I'm proud of the people that work here. And uh, and I think that's what our strength is. And the fact that those people talk to each other and I could never have done my turtle project, for example, if I hadn't been around climate people and thought about the impact that climate might have on those species. Excellent. Um, so last part of my question is, what do you hope SNR's contribution is to the state of Nebraska during your time as our leader? Sure. Well, each one of those areas that I just described has there's you know there's there's going to be in the next decade there's going to be fundamental things that scientists we have almost 80 faculty and their uh, research teams here in the school and and each one of those areas is going to contribute fundamental things to the science and management of their areas but there's also um, I think going to be some some things that are um, the issues that will bring us together and and help us work for the state and the nation and the world. Uh, we've got things like habitat in working landscapes where we're, we're working in a state that's an agricultural based state and that takes habitat in many cases um, out of natural habitat for, so if we think about our fish and wildlife, um, how do we continue to be productive, but also maintain biodiversity and ecosystem function in those areas, ecology. Um, the area of climate planning with climate change, I think the contributions the school makes to um, municipalities, state, regional, governments, individuals, uh, we've got great uh, work that you're doing with uh, farmers and folks working with ranchers um, to help individuals manage, producers manage uh, for the future, for climate. Uh, we've got areas of One Health that we've got uh, some folks working in as we think about different kind of um, contaminants, different types of diseases, different types of things that are out there on landscapes that affect the One Health is people, livestock, and the environment. So this triangle, this triad of things that we're interested in the health of that, that system uh, as defined by those three areas, um, I think that's gonna be important in the future. And then water quality is another thing that I think will really be bringing us um, some, some deep <laughs> questions about how do we solve some of these issues um, as people are concerned about um, what's in their water and it's it's part of the ecosystem and these working landscapes around us. So so we've got a lot of work to do, I'm sure. And I think those will be great areas for our folks to be working in. Excellent. Well, I look forward to being part of it. And I thank you for your time today, Larkin. And you have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much. Yep. Bye.